I am Vicky Murillo, the director of the Institute of Latin American Studies and a professor in the Department of Political Science and the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. I am your host in this podcast series called Unpacking Latin America, which introduces to our audiences the faculty and researchers working on Latin America at Columbia University and how their work contributes to our understanding of the region. Our guest today is Francis Negron Montaner, who is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, curator, scholar and professor at Columbia University, where she's the founding director of the Media and Idea Lab and the founding curator of the Latino Arts and Activism Archive at the Columbia's Rare Books and Manuscript Library. She's also a former director of the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. Among her recent books and publications are Boricua Pop, Puerto Ricans and the Latinization of American Culture, The Latino Media Gap, and Sovereign Acts Contesting Colonialism in Native Nations and Latinx America. Her more recent films include The Small City Big Change, War for One, and Life Outside. Francis is originally from Puerto Rico, where she attended University of Puerto Rico and received her BA in sociology. She pursued her graduate education in the United States, and she received her PhD in comparative literature from Rutgers University. Her work spans multiple disciplines and practices, including cinema, literature, cultural criticism, and politics, and focuses on the comparative exploration of coloniality in the Americas. She pays special attention to the intersections between race, ethnicity, gender, and sexuality. As a multidisciplinary scholar, Francis teaches in the English department, the School of Journalism, and the School of Architecture. In this episode, Francis will draw connections between Puerto Rico and Latin America based on a common history of hierarchies and coloniality, and will discuss how the Puerto Rican society, both in the island and in the diaspora, learned to self-organize in response to catastrophes, seeking to replace the absence of the federal state. She will also discuss how the current discussions on race and ethnicity in the United States and beyond highlights the hierarchies embedded in the Latinx and Latin American population, and will tell us how her search for answering the question of Puerto Rican coloniality brought her to a career that transcends disciplinary boundaries. Welcome, Francis. It's a pleasure to have you at the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks. I have read your recent piece, Staying Alive in Puerto Rico, and what struck me the most was how Latin American was the succession of crises and popular reactions you described there. Before we start talking about this crisis and how they impacted Puerto Rico and their implications, I, I want to start exploring the relationship between Puerto Rico and Latin America. Puerto Rico, of course, is a cultural part of Latin America. It was part of the Spanish Empire. It looks like Cuba and the Dominican Republic culturally a lot. But different from all these countries, Puerto Rico had never had an independent experience and passed from being a colony of Spain to being a territory or a colony, however you want to call it, from the United States. So politically, it's part of the United States and not Latin America. And in fact, one of the main political issue of Puerto Rican contemporary history has been the relationship to the United States, whether it should become a state, whether it should be independent, or retain this peculiar associate state status as a territory of the United States. In the definition of such a status, its Latin character, however, and the ideas of racial inferiority that were associated to it were crucial. So how, given all of your work on this very issue, how is that you see the relationship of Puerto Rico to Latin America? And how does relationship shape the particular connection that Puerto Rico has to the United States? Well, first, I should say that evidently, as you lay out, Puerto Rico shares a great deal with the historical process of Latin America. And if you look at the entire time span from colonization and settlement by Europeans to the present, there's considerably more time that 
Puerto Rico was subject to the Spanish Empire than to the U.S. Empire. So therefore, it's not surprising that Puerto Rico shares a great deal with Latin America, not only culturally, but in many of the social challenges that it has. The second dimension that I think is shared is that although Puerto Rico is still a colonial possession of an empire, whereas most of Latin America or South America is not, it shares also the coloniality of power with Latin America. That is the enduring hierarchies that were imposed during the colonial period that continue through the so-called post-colonial period. And I'm talking about the hierarchies of race and ethnicity and labor and gender and sexuality and, and so forth. So in that regard, I think Puerto Rico remains a part of the Latin American experience. Another dimension of that is that Puerto Rico also received immigrants from Latin America, for instance, from the Dominican Republic, from Cuba, and Puerto Ricans migrate in great numbers to the United States, to cities and areas where there are also thousands of people from Latin America. So those links not only endure because of historical context, but also enduring contact with Latin America, among other, you know, we can talk also that in Puerto Rico today, I would say different social groups also have different relationships to Latin America. So for instance, whereas Puerto Ricans day-to-day -day relationship might be very mediated, could be cultural products, uh, it could be day-to-day -day with immigrants or people from Latin America that settle in Puerto Rico. But for other sectors like intellectuals, the left, uh, the pro-independence and other social movements, they look to Latin America for dialogue around organizing, around how to think about common problems. So the relationships, I would say, are deep and enduring. Yes. Okay. We will come back to this tension between the elites looking more to Latin America and the majority of the population maybe looking more to the United States in a second, if, if that's what you said. Well, no, are. what I said was that they have different, so they might engage with different sites. So for instance, music from Latin America, from Colombia, from Venezuela, for instance, from Cuba, from the Dominican Republic, are cultural products from other locations that everyday, everyday people in Puerto Rico in interact with. Mm -hmm. Whereas there might be other social sectors that look to Latin America for other reasons, that may include cultural production, but also other dimensions. For instance, I'll tell you that in school, when I went to school in Puerto Rico, you do not really get taught Latin American history. But when you get to the university in certain areas, you are taught a lot of Latin American history, Latin American intellectual history, for instance, becomes very important. So yeah, there, there's a lot of different relations that people have with Latin America. From day-to-day -day contact with people from Latin America that settle in Puerto Rico or that Puerto Ricans encounter in the United States, to major deep and sustained engagement with the region intellectually, historically, politically, and otherwise. Coming back to the idea in your piece about crisis, multiple crises, and disaster, in fact, you list there a terrible succession of calamities. These include a debt and a political crisis with a popular mobilization that produced the resignation of the governor of Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, and a succession of earthquakes afterwards, the collapse of physical infrastructure, including electricity, as well as the fact that the US federal government not only imposed a colonial board to oversee the island, which has no accountability to the local population, but also refuses to spend the money allocated for disaster relief. And on top of all of this, of course, came COVID-19. The situation you depict is, a, it's a little bit apocalyptic in a sense and resembles what a lot of the Latin American region is, is going through. You know, this is a region that had a history of debt crisis, especially difficult in the 1980s, had experience of popular protests with resulting in the resignation of presidents, 
Many countries have suffered natural disasters without adequate state capacity. Infrastructure has crumbled. So many times, as in Puerto Rico as well, the situation was made worse by adjustment policies that further reduce state capabilities and, in fact, provide the incentive for civil society to try to step where the state has failed. And the region is as well the epicenter of the pandemic now. So the case of Puerto Rico is different from the region, although it really looks like the region, just because it's a territory of the United States and the US does have the resources to deal with a lot of these issues and unilateral power over the island. So can you explain to our listeners how this crisis unraveled in Puerto Rico before the arrival of COVID-19 and what has been their impact on both the Puerto Ricans living on the island and those who choose to move to the United States, which is what makes Puerto Rico unique. You can always come to the United States. Okay, so the first thing I would say is that in a way Puerto Rico has lived in crisis from the moment of the US invasion in one way or another. And in that sense, one of my main points in the article of Staying Alive in Puerto Rico is that the reception of COVID-19 as a new challenge there was in contrast with that of other countries, including many parts of the United States, where people seem generally surprised and stunned that the government does not provide support, that the infrastructure of health is in decay or inadequate, and that the government doesn't seem to care and so forth. So in that sense, I would say that I I tend to use the term catastrophe uh, more than calamity to describe this, because catastrophe being a moment where there's still work to do, that there's still a moment of overturning, that the circumstances that present themselves can be met And in that regard, I would say that Puerto Rico has been living catastrophic situation, I I, I emphasize in my article, the last decade and a half, since the consolidation of austerity and neoliberalism in the state, a state policy. This is not something that started in 2015 when the government declared that the debt was unpayable. The process of neoliberalization in Puerto Rico began earlier than that, but the last few years have really recreated the situation. Because once that becomes a public announcement that the government cannot pay the public debt, the U.S. responds. And the U.S. responds by appointing a fiscal control board, unelected officials that now have more power over the budget and the government of Puerto Rico uh, than elected officials. And among the group that gets appointed are people that have a direct hand at having created the debt crisis. So now we're talking about, in a way, a returned to the colonial era of the early 20th century where Washington directly controlled Puerto Rican affairs. I want to come back. So we had all these crises piling up on top of each other. What you said could have been avoided. I guess that's the difference of the catastrophe. So there is agency and this agency always seems to turn in the wrong way. And on top of that, we have COVID-19, where there's not that much agency on its arrival, although there is some, and it affects a population that's already suffering and a state that is already weakened. So the difference between Puerto Rico, this is very similar to what's going on in many countries in Latin America. The difference is that in Puerto Rico, you could exit, right? So for the population in the island, there is always the option of exit in a Hirschmanian sense. You could stay or you could leave to the United States. And so I was wondering how is that this addition of catastrophes and the COVID-19 affect those who choose to or have no option but remain on the island versus those that move to the United States, could choose and can move to the United States? Well, let me answer that in two ways. The first is that the, the coming of COVID-19 as a new challenge to life in Puerto Rico was already coming in a situation where the politics of life had become, has come to the center of politics. 
displacing questions like the status of Puerto Rico that traditionally has been at the center of politics. This is really a context where people's most important political goal is staying alive. And the context for that is you have the austerity crisis where there are major cuts into all of life fundamentals that risking people's lives and killing people as a result in some ways. You then have Hurricane Maria where both the Puerto Rican government and the federal government failed purposefully in many ways to assist the population resulting over 3,000 deaths. Then you have 3,000 earthquakes that the state again fails to assist. And in that context, you have COVID-19. So what has happened in that process is that some members of the, of the population, some communities in Puerto Rico, have developed a certain knowledge on how to confront the fact of state abandonment. So those people that choose to stay in some way are engaged in this politics of survival that includes social movements, organizations, and groups that have developed this, this knowledge and this way of coping to make sure that most of people can survive under these circumstances. Now, there are thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people since Hurricane Maria that have decided that the circumstances in Puerto Rico are not possible for life, or at least the life they want to lead, and they have moved to the United States. One of the legacies of this austerity era is the biggest, most massive migration of Puerto Ricans to the United States. Before this moment, the 40s and 50s used to be called the big migration. Hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans, mostly uh, occupying the lower echelons of the labor market, were expelled to the United States to serve as cheap labor. However, the current migration is different in, in form and different in scale. The form is that unlike the prior migration, which has been described by some people as the expulsion of a single class, the current migration has members from all social classes, including the young and the educated and people earning in the you know, middle class income. So that's one big difference. The other big difference is that there's more Puerto Ricans now living in the United States by 2 million than in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is not the first US territory to experience this though. I've done a lot of work in Guam, US territory in the Pacific, where the native population of Guam, the Chamorro people, where nearly 95% or nearly 100% of the population before World War II. And because of joining the military and how the military dispersed people all over the United States, many people uh, decided to, to stay and the relationship between the island and stateside shifted. There are more Chamorro people living in the United States today than in Guam. And the Chamorro people themselves have become a much smaller percentage of the population. So these, these movements of people for different reasons across the U.S. territories have experienced this massive displacement of people over the last 50, 60 years. Yeah, that, I guess, builds the, the social changes and the fact that there's kind of two options, the exit option that seems to be massively adopted and the kind of loyalty option, which might be because you're forced to stay. But the, those who stay seem to be learning from all the different catastrophes that the society is living through. In, and, and sometimes it reminds me of the opportunity for change that these catastrophes might open. So if we think of the Mexican experience, the earthquake of 1985, a lot of people 
have made the argument that is crucial to understand the crumbling of the PRI in power because it shows its inability to respond to the disaster and it favored the organization of civil society that would be crucial later in pushing for democratic transition and ending its 70 year rule. So you're telling me here that in the island we see a process of transformation of civil society that seems to have been emerging of this addition of catastrophes but do you see that as representing maybe a kind of a critical juncture a moment of transformation in the relationship with the united states and in the relationship between government and, and citizens that has been also another you know issue quite important for the region i want to start by saying that the diasporic identification of many puerto ricans that settle in the United States makes the situation not simply those who stay and those who leave. And one of the most dramatic examples of that is after Hurricane Maria, Puerto Ricans in the diaspora organized medical, agricultural, engineering brigades and, and mobilized resources weeks and sometimes months before any government did. And one of the remarkable things about this is not only the efficiency or the, or the resources that people were able to gather and mobilize in such a short period of time, but that Puerto Ricans are among the so-called poorest groups in the United States. That is, some of the groups that have the least amount of resources. Yet, this population, supposedly with, with very little resources, was able to do the job of the government that has much more resources. So the diasporic identification of many Puerto Ricans in the, in the United States, to me, is part of this transformed political space. In other words, we cannot apply the, the paradigm of their, the ones that are stay and the ones that leave as if there was no relationship between the two because one of the most significant transformations has been the ways that people who, who quote unquote stay and people who quote unquote leave remain connected. Apart from the ways that the diaspora organized, another, another example that I find very compelling to illustrate that is how people in Puerto Rico also recognize their relationship to the diaspora, their potential to become diaspora. And for instance, there are, are, are areas of Puerto Rico where activists and community organizations literally make room in their cultural centers and, and spaces for people from the United States to come stay when they visit to support the community. So to me, it's very important to underscore that part of what's happening is not simply out migration. Part of what's happening is a reconstitution of where Puerto Rican, uh, where's the Puerto Rican political space. And it's an archipelago. You know, it's people living in Puerto Rico and other islands around Puerto Rico, but it's also people living in multiple locations and not only in the United States, because during the 2019 protests, another interesting symptom of how Puerto Rican diasporic identification also transcends the US-Puerto Rico binary is that you had protests in support of the social movement in the summer of 2019 from various parts of the world that were not the US, that were Mexico. In, for instance, in Mexico, there were medical students from Puerto Rico protesting. There were uh, people in Barcelona protesting in support, Puerto Ricans living in those locations. That's, I think, an important thing to say. I have a piece called The Emptying Island where I, I feel that one of the impacts of this or one of the questions that this process raises is how to live in a post-nation state world. 
And I think Puerto Ricans uh, in some ways are rehearsing that possibility. And how do you constitute yourself politically under those conditions? Also, you asked about learning and I didn't answer it. And I made a note here whether Puerto Rico or Puerto Ricans had learned anything from the crisis. And I would say that that's an interesting question because it had been raised by the press in Puerto Rico. Hasn't the government- that they had because, you know, the fact that they had to self-organize and step in well, but the, the people have asked, hasn't the government of Puerto Rico learned anything from uh, more than a decade of catastrophe? And obviously I, I the answer is no. Francis, uh, no, you, I studied Latin America. I wasn't expecting the government. No, I know, but I'm saying it's been raised. It's been raised. Uh, have the people of Puerto Rico learned anything from the last decade and a half? Absolutely. And I think it's... Yeah, that's what you said. And that was... Yeah, they produced a, a certain kind of knowledge and what you could call even like a playbook to how to address the situation. And the playbook is based on an analysis. It's not spontaneous. It's based on the knowledge produced in tackling this challenge again and again and again. So for instance, when COVID hit, activists adopted some of the organizing strategies they had used during the summer of 2019, but adjusted them for COVID conditions. But they already knew what to do. They knew they had to organize their resource. They knew, uh, in including there were communities in Puerto Rico that pulled money from sources outside Puerto Rico to buy COVID tests because they knew the government would fail. You know, they organized themselves to monitor people in their community so everybody was sick. They mobilized to make sure everybody ate, you know, within a community. Uh, in fact, one of the arrests during that demonstration, early COVID demonstration, was uh, one of the leaders of the Comedores Sociales of Puerto Rico. So, yes, yeah, so I would say that people, many people have learned and are using that to transform the very idea of what the political is. In Puerto Rico, the political has been defined for decades as the relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, which is a question really of subjection to what state or how you want to be subjected to a state, whether the grassroots is actually identifying very different core issues that affect the population, that affect people's bodies and their capacity to live and thrive. That's extremely interesting in a sense. Uh, diasporic communities have many times participated in their lives of their countries. But in the case of Puerto Rico, I think the idea of being almost like a country within a country allows immigration in the United States and you can return to Puerto Rico. So it's different from those that kind of it's more of a one-way street, even for, for people of almost of all social classes. So this idea that the, the renovation of civil society is not just there and here, but also in both places together, I find fascinating. But let, that, me say, yeah. let me say that the fact that Puerto Ricans born on the island are born U.S. citizens obviously makes migration a lot simpler and easier. And Puerto Ricans never experience illegality, for instance, which can be a challenge and a deterrent for certain kinds of political activity. At the same time, Puerto Ricans feel that that, that movement from the island to the U.S. is forced. So although, quote unquote, you can freely move because of your citizenship, at the same time, many Puerto Ricans that live, leave the island feel they're leaving because of colonial conditions that are making it impossible for them to live there. And I think that's a major force that fuels diasporic identification and political practice in the United States. And although some of that practice involves the role of the diaspora, diasporic Puerto Ricans pressuring the U.S. state or pushing the issues on the media so they're covered, a lot of other forms of organization that Puerto Ricans have in the United States are grassroots forms that are connected to grassroots forms in Puerto Rico. So there's a, quite a, a, a large range of, of action that people take, some of which 
you could say is characteristics of migrants within a territory and others that are done. And that is reflective of this you know, complex relationship that's at once you are citizens, but at the same time subject to coloniality and formal colonialism. So that breeds a very complex uh, set of political practices. Yes, and this comes back to something that I said at the beginning, and I, I want to move the conversation now, which is that Puerto Rico is politically part of the United States, but culturally part of Latin America. So, of course, when you move, the first shock is you're forced to speak another language. So, uh, you know, a very strong cultural effect from making the move from Puerto Rico to the United States. And so I, I really want to come back to culture and your work is so important to understand culture and, and the colonial relationship of, of different populations within the United States. So leaving the island and, and as you're saying, being in the United States, the rational, racialization of the population, this idea that you know, Latinx, Afro-descendants, Native Americans are subjugated citizens within the country, although they are officially, as you say, US citizens. These groups on top of that have been the most hardly hit by the pandemic. And the recent killing of, of George Floyd and, and, the, and the movement of Black Lives Matters have made the conversation on, on the role in society and, and, and race and ethnicity much more salient. So do you think that in a sense, the confluence of COVID-19 and the mobilizations around Black Lives Matters are generating an opportunity to to change this racialized nature of citizenship in the US, this kind of citizenship where you do have the citizenship, but you are not the same as other citizens. How do you see in particular the Latinx in this process, given that ethnicity is also cut across by race? So you could be an Afro-Puerto Rican or a, you know Asian-Puerto Rican or so. How do you see this process? So many things to say. So the first thing I want to say is that Legally speaking, Puerto Rico is not part of the United States. It belongs to the United States. So when recently people were saying that Trump was looking into selling Puerto Rico or exchanging it for Greenland or something to that effect, it's actually not so far-fetched because Puerto Rico is actually not part of the United States. So you could indeed sell it if anybody would buy it <laughs> at this point uh, with the major debt crisis. But in any event, the Black Lives Matter juncture, I think obviously raises a tremendous amount of questions for Latinx people in the United States and also uh, people all over the globe, not only in Puerto Rico or Latin America, but everywhere. And we've seen uh, support protests and marches in various parts of the world outside of the United States. In both contexts, there are certain questions that arise. One is how do Latinx people relate to African-Americans and Blacks? What is the coloniality of power within Latinx communities that also follow hierarchies of race? everywhere, uh, epistemologies, the mass media, uh, access to employment, and so forth. It allows and creates uh, opportunities for subjectivities within Latinx communities like Afro-Latinos to articulate perspectives that are often crushed, silenced, or marginalized between so-called mainstream Latinx uh, people. So for instance, in fact, the, the mere fact that we say Latinx and Afro-Latinos already suggests that the normative category that you know, the Latinos hold is white, because you could, you could argue that in some countries like Cuba or, or among Cubans or Dominicans or Puerto Ricans, certainly Caribbean people, maybe the default should be, you know, white Latino and the, 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 the Caribbean Latino would be already understood as black, you know, but that's not the case. So certainly this juncture, I feel that has provoked an enormous amount of questioning and praxis, an opportunity to bring to light that 
in many ways, Latin America and the U.S. in that regard have a lot of things in common. I mean, even when both contexts of most of Latin America and the United States are nation states, they're still steep in coloniality. I mean, a country where thousands of, of citizens have to say Black Lives Matter is a country that still, in many ways, organized around the same hierarchies of race of colonial periods. Yes, it certainly is, is the case. And still there's variation in how race is perceived across Latin America. I mean, it's, these hierarchies are, are, are devised in different ways from the United States, but certainly the hierarchies are always present there. You have had many different lenses to look at these issues, more than the traditional scholar at Columbia, for sure. Your work is much more multidisciplinary. And so can you tell us why do you make this choice or to what extent is a choice? What explain your becoming a multidisciplinary scholar, an activist, an intellectual? How important in your trajectory has been Puerto Rico, Latin America as a larger region and the Latinx experience? I don't think it's a choice in the sense that I am a question-oriented researcher and I consider my artistic work as my scholarship to be research. All of it is research. It just takes different forms. But the, the early questions that guided my thinking and my work were in rega regarding Puerto Rico. I mean, it's very difficult not to grow up in a household of scholars. My father being a historian of the 19th century Puerto Rico and not have these questions be on the table every day, literally. So as a child, you start questioning, why is Puerto Rico a colony? Why is it one of the last remaining colonies? What's our relationship to this other country? And when you start asking those questions, inevitably it leads to other questions and you start seeing the intertwinement of all aspects. So in disciplines, people tend to construct their object in a very discreet way. But when you are question oriented in that sense, you are led to everywhere that no discipline can really contain. You are led to epistemology, to uh, how institutions are organized, how the political system is organized, how, who are we? And what is our relationship to ourselves, to the US and to the world? And I quickly saw that uh, cultural dimensions, epistemological dimensions, the, what people would consider politics with a capital P, were all in relation to each other. And I feel that's a big factor of how my work became transdisciplinary, I would say. It's not even disciplinary in any real sense. And over time, I feel that perspective is being adopted by more and more people because the more you, you get into how power works, the more you have to account for all these dimensions of power. So it's not simply crude power, let's say. So when you think about the relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, and people tend to think it only in, in terms of the state, let's say, or, or, legal, or legal subjection. But how is that legal subjection and how is that any kind of consent to the status quo obtained? And then you have to go into media and you have to go into the school system and you have to go into the production of public discourses and you have to go into the role of artistic production and so forth. So it seems like it's all interconnected. One thing is when your line of questioning or inquiry begins with an injustice, why is Puerto Rico a colony? Why is Puerto Rico subject to a colonial power? Why are there racial hierarchies and labor hierarchies in Puerto Rico? I think it shapes your work and directs your work in a totally different way than when you come at it as, I would like to become a professional in a discipline. Because the why of what you do 
is very different, potentially. Not that everybody that is trained disciplinarily doesn't have a why of justice, but I think when you start before disciplinarity asking you the questions that way, I think that's where it leads you. Okay, that's a, a very interesting way of trying to explain that to understand the same question, you need to kind of look at it from different focus to get the complexity of it all. And certainly, I love the, the sense that this is not really multidisciplinary, but transdisciplinary. For sure. I mean, I, I feel I've studied, you know, if, I, if you look at my resume, you see that I, I have a BA in sociology, but it really was in Marxism. I have a master in visual anthropology. I have a master's in fine arts in filmmaking. I have a master's in comparative literature and a PhD in comparative literature. And I move from one space to the other to a large extent looking for that complexity that I found lacking in disciplinary spaces, particularly in the United States. I feel that in Puerto Rico, what I was taught was more of a framework rather than a canonical discipline. And in the US, I feel there was just much more pressure to, to com be confined in a discipline, which is probably why, uh, given my generation and the moment I went to, to get a PhD, I opted for comparative literature, which at the time was one of the most capacious spaces, which allowed you to study in various language, in various cultural, national contexts, and, and it afforded me a certain flexibility for me to pursue the work I was doing uh, in relation to Puerto Rico at the time. I really find fascinating how strong Puerto Rico has shaped your search from the moment that you are at home having dinner with your parents and the questions start to the idea of how to define the, the ways in which the search itself has to be implemented in a way that goes beyond the, the traditional disciplinary boundaries that the American academia imposes. I think that's a, a great lesson for all of us, and I'm very happy to have the conversation. I think I learned a lot from your work and about Puerto Rico and this look for answers about Puerto Rico. So I want to thank you for this fascinating discussion. And I want to thank our audience for listening to Unpacking Latin America. Our show is produced by Stephen Calabria from FM and AM Productions. Our music was produced by Manuel Garcia Orozco. And check out the Institute of Latin American Studies at Columbia University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for other activities, as well as listen to us in Spotify, Twitter, SoundCloud and other media. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you.